love to hear God's people sing. It's so encouraging. Hear the voices singing loudly the truths of God. Just thank you for that. Thank you for ministering to me this morning, if nobody else. Take your Bible, please, and open it to Luke chapter 8. We're going to discuss some of the things that we have just been singing about. We're going to finish up Luke chapter 8 this morning. And really, what we've just sung about is the holiness of God. The word holy meaning distinct or separate. It speaks of God's uniqueness, His otherness. He is unlike anyone else, anything else in all of creation. We've just sung those words. And that is really uh, ties in nicely with our study of the Gospel of Luke because that's really what is Luke is trying to highlight, at least in the first nine chapters, the first third of the book. He's answering that question we've discussed several weeks now, who is Jesus? And the reason he's discussing this question is because Jesus is unlike anybody else. He is a person like us. He is a human being like us. And yet he is unlike us in many regards. He is distinct. He is unique. And what we've been considering in chapter 8 is the fact that Jesus is unlike us in the sense of his power and his authority. Jesus is a man who possesses supernatural power and divine authority. He exercises that power. He exercises that authority. And, and the reason why he stands out is because the power and the authority that he exercises really resemble the power and authority of God that we see in the Old Testament. The power and authority attributed to God in the Old Testament is the same kind of power that Jesus himself is, is exercising in the pages of the Gospel of Luke. So at a very basic level, then, Jesus is a man who exercises God's power on God's behalf. He is God's representative. And God has given to him divine power and divine authority to do the works of God, to accomplish the mission of God. But the natural implication that Luke makes here, and it runs throughout the rest of this Gospel, throughout all the Gospels, the New Testament, really the Bible as a whole, is that Jesus is much more than just simply God's agent. He is that, but He is more than that. He is God Himself. He is God in human flesh who has come into this world to carry out God's plan of redemption to save His people. In last week's passage, we saw the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus displayed over creation when He calmed the raging seas of the Sea of Galilee, the raging storm in the Sea of Galilee. We saw His authority demonstrated over the spirit world when He cast out thousands of demons from a man who had been long tormented by demons. The emphasis on authority and power continues over to today in the passage we're going to look at today where Jesus exercises power over disease and death. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, 
She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people what, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not believe, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he had come to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is a little bit of a different kind of passage in the sense that Luke begins to tell us one story, begins to tell us one incident, And that story is interrupted by a second story, if you will. Jesus is on his way to help one person when another person appeals to him for help. And so Jesus handles that situation before moving on back to sort of the original story. But these two stories really are one integrated whole. They're really one singular story. And Jesus shows power and authority in the lives of two different people for two different families. The first story reveals Jesus' power and authority over disease, while the second shows Jesus' power and authority over death. So that's going to be our outline this morning. Jesus' power, his authority over disease, and then Jesus' power and authority over death. So let's look first at Jesus' power, his authority over disease. We connect this passage to the previous one. Remember that Jesus had gone over across the Sea of Galilee to the south, southeastern region of the Sea of Galilee to a region called the country of the Gerasenes. And there he had healed the demoniac with a legion of demons. Uh, the people of that place did not respond well to the miracle that Jesus performed and they, they wanted him to leave. So Jesus and the disciples get back in their boat and they go back to the, to back to across the Sea of Galilee, kind of in a northwesterly direction, to the place where Jesus primarily ministered, the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, the, probably the region, the, the city, the town of Capernaum. And there it seems that the crowd has been waiting for Jesus to return, and when he arrives, they welcomed him. And amidst all this welcome, all the hubbub, the celebration of Jesus returning, there was a, a ruler of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, who approaches Jesus because we're told that his daughter was dying. And just by what Luke records about this man and how he approaches Jesus, we can feel the weight of the desperation that Jairus was feeling. First of all, he's just simply a father, right? Just a a father caring for a sick child. We all, if we're parents, have all probably had some encounter where you have had some deep concern for some situation, maybe an illness or an accident of some sort, where you were deeply concerned about the need of your child. And and, and we can imagine that sense of desperation where, in this case, Jairus is, is on the brink of losing his daughter. If you've never been in that situation before, I'm sure you can imagine something like it, how heartbreaking that would be emotionally to lose your child. 
But it's not just that a father is concerned for his child or for his daughter, but that Luke emphasizes, and Luke's the only gospel writer to mention this, but this was his only daughter. There is a special relationship between fathers and their daughters. And so for this to be Jairus' only daughter really heightens his anxiety. There's a deep love for this girl, and he is fearful of losing her in death. Furthermore, Luke tells us that this girl was 12 years old, so in our mind, she's still very young. But really, in the Jewish culture, she's, she's at the age of her bat mitzvah, right? She's transitioning from adolescence, from childhood into adulthood. She is approaching marriageable age. She is really in the prime of her life. She's entering into that prime of life where she's about to be married and probably have children and and begin to establish a home. This is a, a, a prime, a prime age, and here she is not getting ready to to uh, move into that prime of life, but she's on the brink of death. And and the fact that death is imminent there also compounds Jairus's desperation, and anxiety. The the Greek uh, tense of the verb there, translated as "was dying," indicates that she is in the process of dying; that she may even be near the point of death. So. For Jairus, time is of the essence. He needs Jesus to come right now to come and save his daughter. It is necessary for him to go quickly. We see his further desperation, the fact that he, sort of in his physical posture, says he comes to Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. He is showing signs of not just respect, but of, of humility. He's really taking on the posture of a beggar here. In fact, he even says, Luke even says he implores, he is, he is strongly begging Jesus to help him and his daughter. It's interesting that this, the ruler of the synagogue would do this because the ruler of the synagogue was a man of, of prominence, a man of status, a man of great influence, a man of, of great power. And yet here he is totally helpless. He has no recourse except to go to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does what Jesus does. He goes with Jairus to minister to Jairus' daughter. And they begin to make their way to Jairus' house. But remember, this is happening in the midst of a big crowd, right? The crowd has welcomed Jesus. They're all celebrating. There's a great hubbub going on there. And so as they begin to make their way, there are people that are pressing in. They're pressing around Jesus, verse 42 says the people pressed around him. That word, the verb pressed around, appears also in this chapter, verse 14, to uh, speak of the, the seed that grew up among the, the thorns. Remember that from the parable, of, the parable of the sower? The third kind of soil, the seed grew among the thorns. And what did the thorns do to that plant that was growing? It choked it out. The thorns squeezed that precious plant so that it could not produce mature fruit. So this idea of pressing in is not just simply getting close to Jesus, but they are almost crushing Jesus. They are choking Jesus. It's really foreshadowing the fact that Jesus cannot make it to Jairus' house. He is being hindered from getting to this girl to heal her. Well, among the people there that are pressing in against Jesus is another person who needs help, a woman who needs Jesus' help. In verse 43, we're not told her name, interestingly enough. We're just told of her condition. She has a discharge of blood 
It's probably a uterine hemorrhage. And she's had this condition now for 12 years. And Luke tells us that she had sought physicians to help her. She had spent all of her living, all of her financial resources on physicians, and they couldn't help her. Mark tells us not only could the physicians not help her, they made her condition worse. So now she is, for 12 years, worse off than she first started. All of her income is gone. She is completely helpless. So what does she do? She presses in to get close to Jesus. But I want to draw attention more to than just her physical plight. The, the physical condition here is certainly bad enough. It's debilitating. It's, I'm sure, painful. Somewhat embarrassing, physically speaking. But her hemorrhage also brought on emotional and spiritual repercussions that would create even greater agony. It would be really heartbreaking. In fact, the Old Testament speaks about this woman's condition. Leviticus chapter 15, in verses 25 down to 31. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses. It says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So this woman has a physical condition that also renders her ritually unclean. She's been unclean now for 12 years. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that she would have been somewhat, not somewhat, she would have been isolated from the rest of the Jewish people. Her uncleanness would prohibit her from coming into contact with others, especially family, other family members. Her social relationships would have been severely restricted. If she were to, to go out in public, she should uh, decry as she's going out that she is unclean to warn those that are around her not to come in contact with her lest they also become unclean. And you think about this and the fact that her familial relationships and social relationships have been, uh, been uh, she's been isolated now for 12 years. Those relationships have been severely restricted. Just think about the last five months, right? We're not even six months into this COVID crisis. And yet, how many of us, how many of you have felt socially isolated, felt cut off from family or from friends or from your church body? We have felt the weight of that isolation. And even the most emotionally stable people have felt the weight of it. And we're just, what, five months into this. This woman suffered this kind of isolation for 12 years. In addition, because of her uncleanness, she couldn't go to worship. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't worship the Lord. I don't know if she would have made a trip to Jerusalem to go to the temple, but if she did, she couldn't have worshipped the temple because of her uncleanness. It restricted her from worship. And again, I would ask you to go back and remember, in March and April, when we didn't have public services for seven weeks, how... How isolating that felt. How emotionally and spiritually draining that felt not to be able to come and to worship with the people of God and to sing the songs of praise that we sang this morning and to hear God's Word proclaimed and to take communion and to pray together. Imagine not being able to go to church for 12 years. How isolating. How draining. How heartbreaking. 
How agonizing. And so we can feel something of this woman's desperation. She has been afflicted in every sense of the word and physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually for 12 years. And so with all of her other resources gone, all other forms of help gone, she goes to seek relief from Jesus. But unlike Jairus, who makes a, a public demonstration, who gets on his knees and begs and makes his appeal, the woman approaches Jesus subtly. She doesn't approach Jesus like Jairus. She doesn't explain her situation. She doesn't petition him for, for help. She comes to Jesus secretly. She filters in through the crowd anonymously. She comes up from behind and she simply touches the fringe of his garments. How do we know that she believes that Jesus can help her? Well, look at how she comes to Jesus. She believes that all that she needs is a touch of his garments. Now, perhaps she doesn't come with more public fanfare because of her uncleanness, right? Imagine if you're in the crowd with this unclean woman, if they are docking each other, if they are pressing in against each other, certainly she is touching other people. Certainly she's having to work her way through the crowd. And certainly she is making other people unclean. So I would imagine that's one reason why she came in anonymously. They have restricted her ability to get to Jesus. She can't declare that she needs to get to Jesus because of her condition. Otherwise, it would make everyone else unclean. And perhaps she is somewhat fearful that even Jesus might hinder her. Because in the Jewish mindset, her uncleanness by touching him would make him unclean. Perhaps she wants to avoid the embarrassment of explaining her situation to Jesus. This would be a very embarrassing thing for this woman. But perhaps she just has simple faith as well. She knows that Jesus can help her and all she needs is to touch the fringe of his garment and that his power, that would be sufficient to bring healing to her. Whatever her motive, she presses her way to get to Jesus. She gets him, she touches the fringe of his garment and Luke tells us that when she does, she is immediately healed. And notice that Luke uses the word immediately, immediately there to capture that sense of the instantaneous nature of the miracle. Upon touching Jesus at that very moment, the discharge of blood ceased. The physicians couldn't heal her. They made her worse for 12 years. But in an instant, Jesus Christ and His power made her well. It's interesting though, this woman intends to be secretive. It seems like her intention here is just simply to touch the garment and work her way back out of the crowd and go her way. But Jesus draws attention to her healing. Jesus asks in verse 45 what might appear to be a stupid question. He says, who was it that touched me? And that would be a stupid question if Jesus didn't know the answer. But it seems that Jesus does know the answer. He's asking the question to draw attention to this woman and to her healing. Peter interprets the question as a stupid question. Jesus, come on. We're in a crowd. There's people all around. We're bumping and jostling and constantly people moving and touching you. How in the world can you say someone touched me? But this wasn't, Jesus mentions here by his response, this wasn't a random bump. Jesus knew that someone touched him purposely because power came out of him. So this indicates to us that just by touching Jesus, just an ordinary touch of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to feel power or power comes out of him. This is 
purposeful in some way. It's, Jesus is not like an electric fence, right? If we all go up and touch an electric fence, we're all going to get zapped by it. But just because you bump into Jesus doesn't mean that some power is going to come out of him. Jesus isn't a lucky charm. He's not a magic man, right? This thing just randomly happens. This was purposeful. There was something different about this woman's touch so that Jesus knew that it was having an effect on this woman. And so Jesus says that. He says, someone touched me for I perceive the power has gone out of me. And then verse 47, it says the woman's been exposed, right? She's, she's been brought to attention. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she knew that Jesus was talking about her. She knew that she had been exposed. She thought she was maybe safe in the midst of the anonymity. But she knows here that Jesus knows about her. And so she approaches Jesus trembling. She approaches him in great fear. In the midst of the crowd surrounding Jesus and perhaps with some embarrassment then, she continues to tell him what happened. She explains her situation. She explains why she approached him. And she also related here the consequence of her touch. Luke again uses the word immediately to speak of the immediate nature, the instantaneous nature of this healing, to show the miracle, the power of Jesus to do this powerful act for this woman in great need. But Jesus is not angry with her, is he? Verse 48, he is reassuring her. He is encouraging her. There's no need for fear or embarrassment because God has done a supernatural work through him on her behalf. He is done something for her. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. She is well. And this is a word that keeps cropping up. Last week we saw it in chapter 8, verse 36, with the demoniac, that after Jesus had cast out the demons from him, that he was in his right mind, that he was totally whole, he was well. We saw this on Wednesday night when we saw that that Paul talks about the fact that we as followers of Jesus Christ have been saved. The, the word, Greek word here is sozo. It refers just on a basic level to physical health and wellness. But the New Testament uses this word metaphorically to speak of our salvation. It's oftentimes translated as saved. This woman has been made well. She is saved. Salvation is wellness or wholeness in its truest sense. She's been made whole physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I don't think Jesus here is speaking just of her physical condition. He is speaking about that. She has been healed physically from her hemorrhage, but she has come to him in faith. Because of her faith, she has been made spiritually whole as well. She's no longer unclean, is she? Jesus has healed her illness that made her unclean. Now she is clean. Now she is ritually acceptable. Now she may worship the Lord. She may be among God's people. Jesus has made her clean, which is interesting, right? Because again, normally in the Jewish mindset, this woman would have made Jesus unclean. But it works just the other way around, like the leper. She touches Jesus. She doesn't make him unclean. Jesus makes her clean. She's made well. She is whole. She has been saved. And Jesus connects her faith to this healing. Now notice here that this woman is not saved. She's not healed by her faith. Her faith did not bring her healing. Jesus brought her healing. Jesus does the healing work. Jesus does the work of salvation. It was the power of Jesus who healed. But how did she receive that healing? How did she access Jesus' power? It was by faith. It was her faith that led her to reach out to Jesus. She believed that Jesus could do her good. And so she pressed through the crowd. She made her way through all of the hindrances 
so that she could touch Jesus, knowing that this act alone would be sufficient enough to make her well. And it was. Faith put her in touch with the power of God. The power of God made her well. Then Jesus sends her on her way. He says in verse 48, go in peace. That's sort of the standard way of saying goodbye in the Hebrew culture. But Jesus isn't just saying goodbye to her. He is blessing her. He is saying that God's peace has come to her. All of the torment, all of the agony, all of the turmoil that was caused by 12 years of hemorrhaging have now gone. They are ceased and she has peace. She has relief. She has rest. Jesus is saying that God's peace has come to her. That because of Jesus' healing power, she now has peace. She now has rest in the fullest sense of what that means. Not just physically, but again, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. She has peace with God. And now because of peace with God, she has peace, the peace of God. And she is to go now and to walk in that peace. Now let's pause here for a second and just consider the ramifications this might have for us. Like the other accounts of Jesus' miraculous works, this narrative too illustrates for us the spiritual reality of the gospel because this woman's condition really parallel her physical condition parallels our own spiritual condition. She was afflicted physically for 12 years. She was hopeless. She was helpless. She had consulted every resource available to help her. And they all failed. She had no one to turn to. No one could help her. She had spent all her money looking for a cure, and all of it was worthless. We, like her in our natural spiritual condition, are helpless and hopeless. We're spiritually diseased by our sins and by our trespasses and our transgressions. And isn't it interesting, how many people do we know, maybe you were one of these, who went looking for some relief anywhere. Maybe you went to things of this world. Maybe you went to something like alcohol or drugs. Maybe you went to immorality. Maybe you went to education. Maybe you went to another religion. Maybe you exhausted yourself by various means looking for something to give you some relief, some way to be well spiritually, to have peace with God, and they all fell apart. Until you came to Jesus. My friends, this woman is a picture of us. We are diseased as she was. And yet Jesus shows who he is. That he is the Messiah. He is a kind and gentle Savior. He is one who makes us well. He made this woman well by a single touch. Jesus is demonstrating here his messiahship. He is demonstrating his power and authority. He is authoritative. He is showing his power and authority over disease. How many of us have been so afflicted by disease that we've felt so helpless? Jesus shows himself to be God's Messiah in this. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save. He came to heal. He came to restore. Not just physically, but in totality, in every aspect of our being, in our body, in our soul, in our mind. Jesus is the one who renders us spiritually whole. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are immediately and totally healed in our soul, in our spirit, even if our bodies are not physically restored in this time, they will be one day. 
Because Jesus laid down his life for us. He was the sacrifice for our sins so that we might be made whole in every sense of the world, in every sense of the word. God raised Jesus from the dead to break the curse of sin and the power of sickness and disease and pain once and for all. So even if we suffer a physical malady or disability in this life, we understand because of Jesus' supernatural power and authority, we will one day be made completely well. The healing begins inwardly first, even as the Lord Jesus is working out the full ramifications of that wellness in the days to come. And how do we receive the work of Jesus? How do we receive this wholeness and this salvation? It's by faith. Jesus does the work, but faith brings us to Jesus. Faith is the way that we acknowledge that Jesus is the only one who can help us. He is the only one who can make us whole. Faith brought this woman to Jesus. She knew that Jesus could heal. She pressed in close because of faith. She knew that a simple touch would be sufficient. And so by faith, she is able to access the wholeness that Jesus alone can provide. Faith brings us to Christ. Christ alone saves. Solus Christus. We are saved by Christ alone, by His sacrifice, by His death. But what puts us into touch with Jesus? How do we access that salvation? Sola fide. By faith alone. There's nothing that we can do. We simply come to Him in trust, in dependency, resting, relying upon His work for us. This woman reoriented her whole life to place herself in touch with Jesus. And so by trusting in Jesus ourselves, we forsake everything and we, we access Him. We run to Him. We rest in Him and Him alone for salvation. So Jesus demonstrates His supernatural authority. He is showing it once again, this time over disease, but now the story turns back to Jairus. Poor Jairus, have we forgotten him? I mean, what's happened to Jairus? This is great about this woman, but, but poor Jairus. But Jesus is going to show His authority even over death itself. This woman, this hemorrhaging woman, has interrupted the story. Don't forget that Jesus was walking with Jairus through Jairus' house. And this woman interrupted, actually Jesus interrupted her, right? She was just coming there to touch him and go away. Jesus stopped and interrupts this whole scenario, this whole situation, this whole scene. She was trying to be discreet. She was trying to be anonymous. But Jesus is interrupting the situation, the story to draw attention to what's happening in her life. And I'm sure that Jairus is like looking at his watch. Jesus, I asked you first. My daughter's dying. You can come back and deal with this woman later. Let's go. Let's get a hoof on it. Time is of the essence. And yet, this is all part of God's plan. This delay, this interruption is providential. It's all part of God's plan. I don't think that it is coincidental or ironic by any means that that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old And that this woman has been suffering her discharge of blood for 12 years. And the gospel writers have made that very clear to us. This is more coincidental than coincidence, right? This seems very purposeful. The scripture doesn't say this. This is just me speculating, interpreting. It would not surprise me in the least if this woman's discharge of blood began on the very same day, if not the very same moment that this girl was born. All to bring us to this point. 
All to demonstrate the glory of God. Folks, we need a bigger picture of what God is doing sometimes. This woman is suffering for 12 years, and I'm sure every day she's crying out to the Lord, Lord, would you help me? Would you heal me? And yet it was all part of God's plan to bring them to this moment to display the glory of Jesus Christ for the purpose of God's glorious salvation of His people. In the midst of all of this, because of this delay, there are messengers from Jairus' house who come and interrupt this scene. And they tell Jairus, you know, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't worry about bringing Jesus back to the house. It's a very tragic and very somber note. The only daughter that Jairus loves. The very reason why Jairus had sought help from Jesus is now dead. What help or what good can Jesus do now? But Jesus reassures Jairus, doesn't he? In verse 50, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Jesus tells Jairus here, do not fear in a negative way. Don't fear in a way that will cause you to turn away from God, but to fear God properly, to fear God in faith, to trust Him, to only believe, to believe in God, to believe in Jesus as God's Messiah, who has come to do God's work of restoration. He's calling Jesus to believe in Himself, to believe in His supernatural power and authority that God has given to Him. This girl's death is not beyond the limit of His power. And though Jairus is probably not really understanding this at this point, Jesus is calling him here to believe in Him and to trust in Him. Jesus is going to do something so supernatural, so powerful, that Jairus can't even begin to comprehend it. Jesus declares that the girl will be well. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be be well. And that's where our Greek word sozo comes again. Second time in this passage, again, physical wellness, physical wholeness, health. But Jesus is saying here that she's going to be more than okay. His supernatural power will make her physically well again and spiritually whole. How will she be well? She's dead. Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. And so they begin the journey again. They go back to Jairus' house. The mourners have already arrived to mourn over the girl's death. And we should be sure here, because of Jesus, Jesus is going to say she's sleeping, the girl is sleeping. But we need to understand here that the girl is really dead. And Luke really emphasizes the fact of her death. Jewish culture was very greatly concerned to confirm a person's death. They had all kinds of timetables and things they checked for. So once they pronounce a person to be dead, they're, they're really dead. And it begins a cascade of events, of, of rituals, of things that, that they begin to do to... Uh, prepare the, the girl for burial, to call in the mourners. That's one of the things that they do here. They call the mourners in. They call in the family and the friends. There are also professional mourners. That was very common in this culture to pay people to mourn. This is a very important man. So they're, they're really ramping up their, their display of grief. In fact, it says that not only are they weeping and mourning, the word mourning there means beating their breasts. They are, they are showing very much a very severe, a very profound grief. So every detail in this text is pointing us to the fact that the girl has died. And we need to understand, we need to capture that grasp, the gravity of what has happened to her so that we grasp the gravity of the miracle that Jesus is going to perform. Jesus exhorts the mourners in verse 53 not to weep. 
He says the girl is not dead, but she is sleeping. And they all laugh at him. I suppose we would too, right? This girl is dead. It's been confirmed. The mourners are there. The families are there. Everything is beginning to happen to prepare this girl for death. And yet, Jesus says she's not dead. She's sleeping. They laugh at him and mock him for saying this. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. She is dead. But because he's going to raise her from the dead, it's going to seem as only as if she was sleeping. So Jesus goes into the room. He takes three of his disciples with him. Peter, John, and James. He takes the parents, Jairus and his wife. And there he brings the girl back to life. It says in verse verse 54, he takes her by the hand. He says, child arise and her spirit returned. She got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. But note that Luke says here that she got up at once. That's the word immediately. It's the third time it's happened in this passage of Scripture. She got up immediately. You might remember, we saw this in chapter 7, when Elijah and Elisha, they do these kinds of resuscitations in the Old Testament. When they bring dead children back to life, usually it's a process, it's a gradual process. There's several steps that take place before the, the boy, in both cases, the boy comes back to life. But here, Jesus' resuscitation is different because this girl comes back to life immediately. Jesus' miracle supersedes even the miracles of the prophets of old. He exercises greater power with greater authority. And then Jesus gives proof of the fact that she is indeed alive, that she's not simply a ghost or that she's in a trance, but he directs that they give her something to eat. Usually that happens in the New Testament when someone comes back from the dead. You give them something to eat as proof that they are alive. And Jairus and his wife are absolutely amazed. Verse 56, her parents were amazed. Jesus has here proved that his command for Jairus to believe is indeed trustworthy. I don't know that Jairus knew exactly what that meant to believe, but he believed at least at a simple level. Jesus here was calling him to faith and he believed enough. He believed simply. Jesus did more than he could have, he could have expected. He and his wife are amazed. So amazed now, I'm sure they couldn't wait to tell everybody. If you had seen something like this, wouldn't you want to tell other people? And yet Jesus says something curious in verse 56. He charged them to tell no one what had happened. That seems a little bit odd for Jesus. Back in the previous chapter when the demoniac was healed, Jesus told him, go back to your hometown and tell others what God has done for you. And the man did. Jesus commissioned him to go back and to tell others what happened. We know that Jesus commissioned his disciples after the resurrection to go into all the world. It is the Christian mission. This command that Jesus gives to Jairus and his wife is not for us. This is not for us. Our commission, our command is to go into all the world and tell others about Jesus. It's also a little peculiar because isn't the cat going to get out of the bed? This girl was dead. Everyone knows that she's dead. What's going to happen when they see a little girl up and walking around? I mean, it's going to be amazing, right? Nobody else is in the room except Jesus, his three disciples, and the parents. And aren't they going to want to know? And aren't the parents going to want to tell? We don't exactly know why Jesus commands them not to tell others. It could be that Jesus is controlling the narrative. Remember that people had all kinds of expectations of what the Messiah meant. 
They had all kinds of grand visions and mainly political notions of what the Messiah should be. And lest that get out of control, Jesus says, don't say anything to anybody. He is going to go and he's going to tell. He is going to proclaim the gospel. He is going to clarify what he, his messianic ministry is and means for them. Whatever the reason Jesus tells them not to speak in this situation. But the purpose of this narrative is to show the supernatural authority of Jesus. He is showing his supernatural authority over death. And like the previous instance, the previous narrative with the woman and with the the discharge of blood, this situation reflects something of our own lives. It is in some ways a, a parable illustrates for us the reality of the gospel. That the condition of this girl is, is like our own spiritual condition. And Jairus' daughter was sick with an illness that ultimately led to her death. And the scripture uses both of those as metaphors for our spiritual condition. We've talked about the sickness part. The Bible speaks of our sin as a sickness, but it also speaks of our spiritual death because of sin. Ephesians 2.1 you are dead, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We are spiritually dead, just as this girl is physically dead. But God provided a solution for her, and He provides a solution for us. And that solution is His Son, Jesus. Jesus possessed supernatural authority and power to break the power of sin and death. He broke the power of death over this girl's life. She was dead. We, are con- we have confirmation. We have emphatic explanation here that she was dead, and yet Jesus brought her to life. God had sent him for this purpose. And if we trust in God's providence, then we must believe that God has arranged these things to happen at this time to show His supernatural authority, that Jesus possesses a power greater than death. If you think about it, there is no power on earth greater than death. It's the one thing that we as human beings cannot stop. We cannot overcome. We cannot cheat death. We have no power over death of our own selves. But God sent Jesus for us to break the power of death over us. Jesus came. He laid down His life. He voluntarily laid down His life as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. And then God raised Him from the dead. And because God raised Him from the dead, death no longer has any power over Jesus. Jesus conquered it. And so if we are in Christ, though we may die in this life, though we are under the curse of death, that curse has been broken. And one day, though we may die in this life, it will be as if we have never died. Because we will live forever. We will live in the truest sense of that term. This girl's death and her resuscitation points us to the gospel. It points to what Jesus will do for us. He breaks the curse and power of death over us and raises us up to, up to new life. It points to how He would do that by laying down His own life on our behalf, but taking it up again in resurrection. And so we have the hope that one day, though we may die, we will live again because Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection that will come for us on the last day. Like the woman with the discharge of blood, Jesus calls Jairus to believe. And we, like Jairus, need to believe. 
Jesus is calling us to faith. He is calling us to recognize our own spiritual condition. He's calling us to trust Him, to believe in the Gospel, and to walk in the new way of life that He has established for us. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who possesses supernatural power and divine authority. And He has used that power and that authority on our behalf for our benefit. By this power and by this authority, every other power and every other authority over us is broken. And Jesus reclaims us to be His people. So like Jairus and his wife, let us marvel and let us be amazed at the power and authority of Jesus. And let us walk in this power and let us walk in this authority as Christians, as little Christs, representing Jesus to the world. Not like Jairus and his wife in this sense, but as people who have com- been commissioned to go into the world and to declare the same message and to testify to the glory and grace of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It is true. It gives us hope. It speaks to us of what your plan is for us, of what your intentions are for us. Father, we just bow our knee this morning. We are like the woman with the discharge of blood. We are like Jairus' daughter, diseased and dead. But for the glory of your name, you sent your son to heal us and to raise us up. And now because of what he has done, we walk in a new way. Help us, Lord, to walk in this way. Help us to testify to the glory and grace of the gospel so that Jesus might be exalted, that he might reclaim for himself those who belong to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.